Hi there. Thanks for listening again to the Digital Sociology Podcast. Uh, I'm Chris Till. Um, today I'm talking to Hugh Davies, who's a researcher at the Oxford Internet Institute and has done some great research about um, young people's use of technologies, uh, particularly in relation to uh, education and skills. Um, and so you'll hear more about that in a few minutes. Um, just wanted to say, uh, as usual, really happy to get any any feedback on these podcasts, uh, any of your ideas. Uh, for that, you can find me on Twitter at Chris H. Till, um, and you can find my blog uh, online, which is this is not a sociology dot blog. Uh, so please do get in touch on there, and um, there you can also find an archive of all the the podcasts, uh, and you can get. Uh, the listen, to, listen to this podcast and, and any other episodes on the Anchor platform and also by searching for Digital Sociology in whatever podcast app you use, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, etc. So I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Hugh. Hi again. So uh, today I'm talking to Hugh Davies, who's a researcher at the Oxford Internet Institute and um, along with myself and a few others is also uh, a convener of the British Sociological Association's Digital Sociology Study Group. Um, so, hi, Hugh. Hi, Chris. Hi, good to talk to you, um, and uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great. Uh, there's, uh, it's this fantastic opportunity to talk about my work and trying to hopefully reach a wider public. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I think that uh, this podcast format's been quite nice, actually, for just to have a an opportunity to have a decent chat with uh, with people who are doing interesting stuff. Um, yeah, so I think, and uh, I'm, I, hopefully there's people out there that are getting something out of it. I've, uh, I've had feedback from a few people, so I think uh, I think it is reaching some some ears. Do you, do you have any idea about numbers, downloads, and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, we've uh, we've, been, we've been having quite a few. I know that the, the last one I put out. Um, it reached 300 listens in the first couple of weeks, which is not bad, I think. Um, that's good. If, if you get a paper read that many times, that's good. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's it, it, things like podcasts and blog posts uh, get um, always seem to get a much a much wider audience than anything uh, supposedly more more legitimate for a, a research assessment uh, exercise yeah. and things like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, you never know with the metrics, though, whether people have read the whole thing or whether they share it thinking, you know. No, that's look true. What, look at what this idiot is saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, that's fine as well. But um, yeah, no, that's true. You don't, you don't know um, necessarily if people have listened to the whole thing um, mm. um, or if they've just kind of clicked on it for a minute or so. But at least, well, it, they're at least aware of it anyway. So mm. th that's, that's helping, I think. Um, so yeah, I've been, um, it's, it's great to have you on the podcast because, um, um, I mean, I know you quite well anyway and um, I've seen you speak a few times and, and read some of your work. And um, I think the work you're doing is is really great, and it's really it's really good kind of empirical work, and really sort of theoretically and, and uh, critically engaged as well, uh, which is kind of my favourite kind of stuff, I think. And um, but um, uh, broadly, your work is kind of engaged with um, um, young people and kind of with education in relation to um, digital stuff in general, but kind of use of computing and social media and other issues. Would you say that's right? Yeah, I mean, I started off my PhD researching teenagers and young adults, and I found them uh, interesting research subjects just because there's um, 
they stereotyped quite a bit. Yeah. And and because they're easy to access population for researchers, research is often done to them. And that during that process, they voices often erased. So I was anxious to um, operationalize the the sociological ideas about youth and um, try and use methods to to let them speak for themselves. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think you're right. They're, they're one of those groups that has, like you say, has research done to them rather than with them. Um, yeah. um, and definitely, I mean, one of the things that I've always taken from from um, from sociology is that uh, it, sh it should be about uh, enabling or, or uh, people's voices to be heard um, or, or giving them space to um, rather than um, imposing thing, imposing uh, ideas on them. I also think that the tension between structure and agency, which I'll probably talk about a lot in this podcast, is quite in, is quite um, salient when it comes to teenagers, because they um, they want to assert their agency, but they come across they, they you know obviously they experience um, structural resistance a lot more mm -hmm. than many adults. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's true. And I suppose and uh, another as uh, a particularly important aspect of your work is has been looking at. Um, Actually, the different experiences uh, uh, between young people of different kind of social uh, and uh, kind of economic backgrounds, um, which I, who I suppose uh, feel the the strictures of those structures differently. I would I would guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm also interested in how um, we problematize teenagers and miss the and the same well. The same contradictions in in um, older populations, you know. So we focused on digital literacy with teenagers and missed the digital literacy of baby boomers, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, but just yes, just going back to your question, I did a, a I've done a lot of field work at, in comprehensive schools in the Oxford area in South Wales. And it's just a really interesting range of characters I met, and. Uh, it gives me empirical grounding to talk about that structure and agency debate. Mm. So, so one of those studies, um, which was um, uh, written up into an article in New Media and Society uh, this year, I think, was called Learning to Google, um, um, which looked at the class and gendered practices of young people using the internet for research. Um, uh, and um, uh, was that one one of the, uh, the comparative... Uh, ones between between Oxford and and Wales. Uh, no, that that was um, that was a um, comparing a private school in London with um, a vocational college in uh, on the south coast of England. In a, oh right, that's right. Yeah. In a, I, I don't I, I think I'm allowed to say it's Portsmouth. Yeah. So um, it was quite a contrast in the. In the uh, class habitus, if you like, of the of the two cohorts, yeah, and uh, the the their education strategies were uh, couldn't be were poles apart. Mm -hmm. You know, all the, the 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 young people in the private school were all being offered place at um, Oxbridge or UCL or an Ivy League university, while the the people in Portsmouth were all quite disillusioned with education, you know, and they just sort of um, there because they, they, they'd run out of options, basically. Yeah, and did you find that those, 
those different approaches to and aspirations for education um, related to how they how they the, the, the topic of that uh, research that in, in terms of how they use the internet and specifically how they used Google, I suppose, to do research. Did they? Did you find they engaged differently? Definitely. Um, first of all, I was struck by how differently they engaged with my methodology. That I mean, it wasn't a surprise because I'm a former teacher. That um, the the portions of students were because they sort of, they were sort of disinvested in education. They saw my um, my experiment as a as an exercise, as like a chore they had to do. And some of them like would do it half hour. Some of them would just take the piss. Um, you know, to be fair, some of them would engage with it. You know, but at the same time, it was um, they. They wanted to know what they had to do to get it out the way, sort of thing. Yeah. To keep me keep me happy. <laughs> well, it, and, and then they, you know, they go off and get on and do whatever whatever they wanted to do, right? And then the, the students in um, the London school were anxious to show off how clever they were. Mm. So, those, so they they really put effort into the answers because they, you know, their the reputation in my eyes is really important to them. Yeah. And so they would, so they, you know, the average time to complete the task in Portsmouth was eleven minutes, and in London it was two hours. Wow, yeah, that is quite a difference. Yeah, <laughs> and and that was an interesting methodology used in in that project, if I remember rightly. So you kind of set some tasks for um, the students to do, um, to uh, to research some answers to, um, or to investigate some issues online. Um, but you, um, but you also kind of tracked their. Um, uh, their activities as well uh, with their with their consent. Uh, was that yeah. right? Yeah, um, but if, if it, I did a lot of like um, uh, foundation work to get to know them and, and spend time with them. <coughs> Excuse me. And then um, I, I met them in focus groups to find out what and what top sort of tab, topics animated them, and then sort of probe the ambiguities in their knowledge. Mm. So, like for example, both groups talked about immigration quite a bit mm. and um because the um the portsmouth group felt that their community was on the wrong end of unfair um public policy you know in terms of housing um healthcare, and this sort of thing right yeah and then the london group were all mainly um children of immigrants, highly skilled immigrants, right? Yeah. Sort of high court judges and surgeons and this sort of thing. And uh, they, I'd ex after I explored this in the, in the focus group, I gave them research questions to find out things using Google to, to try and um, take a position and back it up with some facts they found on the internet. So, for example, it, you know, it should we have more restrictions or fewer restrictions on immigration? Right? And I, then I looked at what websites they went to, what search terms they used, and then I discussed with them how they arrived at their answers. And then um, I took into context then in the they sort of their social networks and what they told me about their families and everything, and try to work out how they viewed the world through certain epistemological lens and how that was expressed the way they use Google. So you found that actually there was this kind of correlation um, uh, between uh, between their worldview and, and how they and how they used 
the technology. Yeah, well, it um, you know influenced the search terms, right? And what what they what um, how they interpret the order results, what results they thought were most credible. Mm. Um, so I mean, it was all sort of a construction. This this uh, uh, they were constructing a narrative through what they found, but. Um, and I was interested in how much reflexivity went into that, and how much of it was, right. um, yeah, irreflexive subjectivity and reflexive subjectivity. Mm. And uh, so I could think about structure and agency in that context, and I use um, Bourdieu's theory of habitus and field to, to try and work through those issues. Yeah, I wonder if you could could you say something about uh, specifically how you use um, uh, Bourdieu in this. Uh, in this context? Well, I looked at um, the, the norms within their community and the incentives that, that were structured in, into their community and how they um, strategically responded to those incentives. So, if, for example, uh, in Portsmouth, if you said something that was anti-immigration or then anti-immigrants, then often they reward each other you know support each other and say mm -hmm. yeah like, and, and, it, and, and reinforce their in-group status yeah you know and it so the ability to express um anger about immigration was sort of almost a form of capital that they could leverage say so, so i've got some facts that i can share with the rest of you about immigration and then that this makes me come across as more authoritative than than the people who haven't researched it sort of thing and the same thing happened in in London, but they they had a different set of facts. So they they could talk about um, employment figures. They talk about um, economic theory, and they could um, cite some even cite some academic journals. You know, so yeah. the same way that that they this the, the forms of capital worked to position themselves within their field. Uh, and I think you mentioned in the article that uh, th th this was often, uh, I think for the Portsmouth students, often kind of articulated in a kind of a um, discovery of conspiracy theory type um, um, scenario um, yeah. as being victims of a conspiracy, but also um, in that fairly kind of, um, you know, um, well, now, unfortunately, mainstream political sense of, of, of the, the kind of uh, victimization of um, white working class populations, but also in broader terms of, of more um, uh, more traditional sense of conspiracy theories in terms of things like the um, uh, uh, the the real perpetrators of 9-11 and, and those kinds of ideas. Yeah, I mean, um, some of the students like didn't care and they didn't understand why uh, well, well they, they their peers were so get so wound up about it mm. and they were more concerned about like um, uh, football or, or or fashion or something like that you know mm. and they, they, they didn't really want to talk about it and they were a bit embarrassed about it but others were if they had conspiracy theory about immigration they already had a conspiracy theory about something else as well mm. you know and uh, they sort of misrecognized this as critical thinking Right. So they put together this this um, narrative of them able to see through the bullshit, with no, which uh, which no one else could, sort of thing. Mm. And they'd done their research on the internet to to 
prove the point. So, you know, the same guy who talked about um, people, immigrants jumping in the housing queue and getting four million pound mansions also said that that um, 9-11 was caused by people planting bombs inside the towers and bringing them down to yeah. expedite the Iraq war. And that's, I think that's one of the key, for me, one of the key th- uh, themes that you identify actually is, um, well, the, the, this kind of tension between, uh, there's a big, there's a strong policy push for the incorporation of practical skills of coding and programming. And I think you, you might want to say more about that later, about the, the extent to which that's that is even successful on its own terms as, mm. as an educational initiative. But also, and, and almost kind of beside that is, the 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 different issue of the critical skills of young people to deal with the internet and with technology, um, which I think you identify as being a really significant problem here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the critical the, the knowledge of technology is a component of it. I mean, none of the students could tell me how Google works, like uh, how it prioritised results, or even how the internet worked. Was that for both groups? Yeah, uh, the, yeah, for both groups. The, um, there's only one person in the London group who could describe um, HTTP technology, for instance, and packet switching. Mm. Uh, the, the, the rest didn't. They could talk. They had specialist scientific knowledge about, like, say, they could say, explain how, how um, electromagnetism made Wi-Fi work, mm. but they could. They didn't know how, like, a, an email travelled from the UK to America, for instance. Mm. You know, they could speculate using the scientific knowledge, but the, the, the people in Portsmouth didn't have any idea at all. And I've, I've got some more evidence to support this, where the schools I researched in South Wales in 2016, I, I got all the young people in year nine, year 10, to draw a picture of what they thought the internet looked like. Mm-hmm. And most of them just drew their phone or a picture of Google or a picture of Facebook. No one had any idea about the infrastructures. No, you know, mm. let alone the protocols or anything like that. So, um, the technical knowledge is a big component to this, but also it's being problematically dis- disaggregated from the rest of the school curriculum. So, you know, to understand conspiracy theories or on the internet, then it helps if you have a good working knowledge of science, or you understand history, or you understand how to read and interpret sources. Uh, how to look for markers of authority, you know, how to critically evaluate research methodologies, for instance, when you see a survey. Yeah. All these sort of things that you and I take for granted. Um, and uh, uh, I sort of denied the majority of the population, you know, so it's, it's no wonder they, they believe in conspiracy theories. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, perhaps actually this, this, this sort of looking for conspiracy theories, um, what it made me think when I was kind of um, when I was reading your article is that it shows a sort of a um, a latent maybe a latent desire to understand the world better and to to be critical of things yeah um, and to engage with it on that level but like you say not actually having the um, being being uh, encouraged to develop the the required skills to do that how we would consider to be properly I suppose yeah um, definitely they they're looking for patterns. Yeah. Like, um, but they see agency where there isn't any. You know, and I, uh, I often um, that it it, it um, 
it often troubles me that um, even in academia we get this we get this problem where we we, we look for agency where it where it where it's not there you know mm. where we use um, terms like neoliberalism too loosely yeah you know where we uh, uh, we assign that people would have who have a clear ideological agenda and the power to enact it and assume their motives and everything mm. without sort of critically discussing it. Yeah. So, but I think it, you know it's it's true for all of us. I mean, I, and I often find myself using ontological contexts that I take for granted, and I don't question that, that I'm operationalizing research. And I think sometimes my own, I think my own my own my own work should fail peer review. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so I I have trouble sending things off sometimes because I think. Um, you know, um, can I get away with saying that and, and sort of testing whether I can get away with certain things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's a, I mean, that's a, I think a, just a, a very sophisticated um, way of uh, reflecting on that kind of um, uh, those kind of doubts we we we, we all have um, all the time. And but I think that the, the important part there is, which you highlighted earlier, is is that. Um, capacity or, or tendency towards uh, reflexivity um, mm. is with yeah there might be problem uh, there's problems with everything i'm sure or lots of things that we all do and lots of things that we write and suggest um but that potential and that um our willingness to reflect on that it is really important and um that is i imagine that's something that needs to be encouraged in this kind of context mm. and um i mean just to kind of push that on a little bit further because obviously what you're identifying i think is is extremely important and it won't just be confined obviously just to the 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 schools or the areas you've looked at but will be widespread across and certainly across this country and imagine imagine others as well i mean i i would be very surprised if i know many people at all that could explain um those those, uh, issues that you um that you described about packet switching about how um, the the internet, well, actually, the difference between the internet and the World Wide Web, mm. um, or how Google works and uh, its algorithms and things like that. I mean, it's something I cover. I, I, I myself, I even have relatively limited knowledge on it, but it's stuff that I do cover uh, in an undergraduate module that I run. And uh, not one of my students would, um, before coming into the class, uh, I don't think we would know any of that. Um, and that'd be true of most adults as well. And it is a kind of, um, it is a bizarre and worrying situation uh, in the sense that we wouldn't, um, probably most other areas of our lives where we have things that's so influential and so important to them, we probably would have a slightly better understanding of them. Um, I mean, most people would have a better understanding of, uh, um, at least uh, on some level of the kind of the democratic processes that we're involved in and, and those kinds of things. And as we've seen in recent times, that that these these systems are uh, implicit in how democracy kind of functions. And I, I wonder if uh, I don't want to ask you to speculate too much, but um, would you consider there are to be, are broader political consequences to these these kinds of lack of uh, critical skills uh, and their connection with that, that technical knowledge as well? Definitely. I mean, the both these issues these issues implicated in Brexit and Trump. But also, I'm struck by how little politicians know about these things. Mm. So it could be the basis of really bad policy. Mm. I mean, like, I mean, how can the public rally around net, net neutrality if they don't know what it is? You know, mm. or what, why it's important? 
Yeah. And, you know, I remember Amber Rudd talking about banning encryption. Yeah. I mean, how the hell do you do that if they ban maths? Yeah. So, so it's, yeah, they can be the basis of ridiculously bad policy. I mean, like, um, you know, I, I, I keep reading an endless succession of bad policy, tech policy, and it is really worrying. Yeah, I mean, I'd, it's, we've, despite the, the, the things that have happened recently and the kind of the, the attempts to um, um, either to kind of rein in to some extent or to kind of at least engage with the power of, of Facebook and Twitter and, and, and those kinds of networks at least, um, they are just a, they are just the kind of the the headline of this and the surface mm. of this. I think they have they they actually have tried to respond to it a bit more than I thought they were going to actually. But it's still it is still um, uh, I think uh, relatively speaking a, a gloss on uh, over the issues. Um, mm. But I but I think that it's um, uh, th there's really a, an incredibly long way to go um, if in terms of uh, being able to deal with these these things politically in any kind of organized way um and there's actually i think still relatively little kind of political uh, will to do that as well yeah i agree i mean these are completely systemic problems yeah. and they problems of governance as well problems of the, the culture within organizations and uh again it, it comes back to this idea of contingency versus structure you know uh, uh, who's got the power to make a difference? Mm. Uh, why, why aren't they trying to make a difference? You know, what needs to be done to try and make these technologies work for a better society? Yeah, and, and if we're not careful with this, I think we're, we're, we are going to be increasingly subject to the will of these kind of fiefdoms that, that are, yeah. are controlled by um, people. And, you know, just to take the most obvious example of Zuckerberg and, and Facebook, that's a company that's developed this really significant amount of um, economic and political power and commercial power um, on the basis of a kind of a few personalities, really, and of people mm. who obviously have got significant um, technical knowledge and probably thought they understood the social and uh, and and the political and um, and and the psychological. Um, aspects of life, but really didn't. Um, uh, and regardless of what their intentions were, um, didn't, weren't really aware, I don't think, of what, of what, they, were, um, what they were holding on to. Um, and uh, I mean, part of the answer to this might be to, um, for those uh, to encourage or uh, force perhaps those companies to take more of that uh, into consideration. But as you say, like how that would actually happen um, tackling these things, these kinds of networks, which have become so um, systemically central to um, communication and commerce and, uh, and all these areas is, is kind of mind-boggling, really. Mm. There's a huge opportunity for sociology, sociology here, I think. Yeah. But I don't know how we up our game and how, I don't know how we infiltrate these systems, you know, and how we influence such people. Because the, the problem is, is they really not, like people like Zuckerberg in particular, they completely naive and sociological understanding of the way the world works. Mm. You know, how so they can't foresee unintended consequences of their technology. 
and they so they have these like um, um, systems of belief that perpetuate the flaws in this in the in the technology mm. and um, the a, a really good example of this is that um, the um, project I worked on when I wrote that paper about neoliberal gremlins. Yeah. And they um, it was all about technological solutionism versus the reality people's lived reality. So I used the um, my my colleague and my uh, Rebecca Einan, we used the our ethnographic evidence to challenge the technological solutionism, you know, and it was like a big re reality check on it. Yeah, so um, kind of a challenge to this kind of utopian, yeah. optimistic view of that tech. You know, if you just drop some technology on a problem, it it, it yeah. solves it. And you know, that's right. And we we took the sort of the people's reality of the the day to day lives. You know, when they're dealing with death, mental illness, um, social exclusion, poor housing conditions. And compared to that, to what the tech community imagined their lives would be like, yeah. you know, and how easy would it would be to solve their, their, their problems by just giving them more tech, you know, and then how the tech industry and its governance systems are organised. So, if they if they wanted to do some symbolic violence to these people, then they couldn't have done a better job. Basically, you yeah. know, they they treated them as um, Units of human capital, capital that the wealth could be extracted from, even though these people were like um, didn't have any money. So you got, I mean, a good example where the um, a, uh, a single mother with three um, children with special needs had been um, living on benefits, but she was paying 120 pound a month to an ISP for services because they convinced her and give her a hard sell because she needed those services. Gosh. And yeah. it was all the all the transaction was done by a call center, and then when something went wrong with it, there's no way that you could get an engineer to the house without being charged for anything. There's countless examples of that sort of thing, but I, I wrote about this, I talk about it a lot more in the paper about the governance systems within the organisations and how they are not set up to address lived reality. And it's the same at Facebook that they they've scaled up so quickly that they can't cope with the amount of um, hate speech and disinformation and everything on, the, on and the amount of like horrific content on their network. So they, you know, employ 3000 moderators, you know, on minimum wage, usually young people to watch content 40 hours a week until yeah. they so traumatized, they can't take it anymore, you know, and that supports their business model. Yeah. So, all the time they're externalizing the, the, the failures to think sociologically about the world. Yeah. And so um, this was a project where you, um, you look, it was looking at digital upskilling. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And so it was kind of challenging that, uh, again, that, that assumption that um, um, any kind of, um, uh, many of the structural inequalities um, as we would identify them that, um, that young people are facing uh, in kind of poorer areas and, and areas with um, 
lower educational attainment can be can be solved by um, increasing their their sort of digital skills. Yeah. Um, and you you found that actually um, the picture was kind of mixed on this, but there was actually um, some of those young people did actually have quite significant uh, digital skills, but they didn't necessarily fit the the model in which the sort of educational um, discourses um, would identify them as such. Mm. So that was the pipeline to prosperity study. Yeah. And it was uh, based on um, six weeks um, in South Wales in two schools, one in the inner city area and one in um, a former mining town. Yeah. Both comprehensive schools. And um, it was at the time when the computer, new computer science curriculum was um, being introduced. Yeah. And I would looked at all the discourse coming from the advocates for this policy and the documents coming from the government. And it was all about how transformative learning computer science could be. And, and I was interested in how the student, what the students thought about it, how mm -hmm. the initial experiences were like, and also interviewed the teachers. And uh, sort of compared that the the empirical evidence to what to the discourse, and um, you, you know it the it, it was quite striking how how much of a mismatch there was between the reality and mm. the, the the fantasy sort of thing. And so that's in terms of the fact that the kind of um, upskilling the government were suggesting isn't really effective or just doesn't doesn't speak to those young people or that they're kind of going off off and going off and doing their own thing with technology anyway yeah both um well first of all the the, the teachers in the schools completely unprepared for it mm -hmm. the um the teachers um were sent away on like um half day courses to the local university and this sort of thing mm -hmm. but they were had to um learn coding on the fly to keep us one step ahead of the kids yeah and you know, they had so many other pressures on them that you know, they ended up doing it in their spare time. Mm -hmm. And then the school wasn't set up in terms of the equipment, the software necessarily needed. And, you know, they had out-of-date PCs. And the, for most of the students, the idea of coding on a PC using things like Python was so far removed from the, from the reality, they didn't know why they were doing it. Mm. Or they found it boring, irritating. You know, they they had to debug systems when it was, and they said that it just became really tedious. And they expected to sit down in front of a screen now and work out how to debug some Python code was not their idea of an of a, of a, uh, interesting lesson. No, but they also uh, were doing all sorts of things with technology at home and in their social lives that wasn't being reflected in the curriculum, but they were really passionate about it. So the, one student, for instance, had um, a job, part-time job as an anime artist, and she was sending material to a company in Japan, and they were paying her and sending checks to a local bank, and she was collecting them on a Saturday without her parents knowing. <laughs> and there was another group of lads who were... Um, really enthusiastic gamers and they were talking about how they um, would trade skins on the on 
Counter-Strike, um, how they would um, go on the dark web and, when they, and share a screen and wander around just for fun and this sort of thing. Mm. And uh, they would, if they'd learned JavaScript and things like that, but as a way of customizing games when there was a clear incentive, but they weren't interested in what the tech provision in school. No. So that, that yeah, the, like you say, there's just that, that, that total disconnection. Yeah. Um, but um, you, um, uh, you uh, and Rebecca came up with this um, uh, typology um, of the different students. And I, 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 love a, I love a sociological typology of people because it's great to be able to see if you, if you fit into it or if you, you, know, if you would have done uh, when you were at school and things like that. But um, so the, the typology you came up with um, for the, the, the students you researched was, um, so it was uh, nonconformists, PC gamers, academic conservatives, pragmatists and leisurists in terms of mm. how they engaged with, uh, I mean, with, um, with the internet and the web in general, uh, in particular, but um, I suppose technology slightly more generally as well. And I suppose the overwhelm, um, as you found, the overwhelmingly largest group was the leisurists. So what was that? That was kind of people who um, pretty much just used the internet for for kind of Snapchat and Instagram and and um, and uh, surfing around and that kind of thing. Yeah, and games. It, games. it was like uh, it was a, a way of distraction, relieving boredom, and and interacting with their friends and family. So mainly through a smartphone and apps. So they're very unlikely to have their own PC, for instance, mm. or even a laptop. And that was that was the general experience really mm. and this was the group who was less able to draw a picture of what the internet looked like as well or reflect about how the technology worked it was um it was more of sort of a, a, um a, a, an alternative media form so they, they they didn't say they watched tv much for instance but they watched youtube quite a bit so they talked mm. about youtube celebrities and that sort of thing so um they would do work, school work in maybe on a computer, maybe once or twice a week. And then the, the rest of the time, they just use the, um, plat they they use the game console or their or the smartphone. Yeah. Um, but most of the other groups were kind of um, in different ways, I think slightly more kind of um, uh, actively engaged perhaps. Um, whether that's aligned with kind of uh, political or kind of lifestyle, maybe issues in terms of nonconformists um, yeah. or, or the PC gamers, because they were they were kind of um, they were kind of pushed down that route in, in terms of being interested in in more hobbyist enterprises of uh, uh, building technology and, 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 and that kind of thing, and like you said, engaging in, in kind of slightly um, um, uh, borderline activities of, of, of looking around the dark web a bit. And then the academic conservatives who were, who were kind of more using, um, maybe using technology as, as a means to an end for academic um, success. Mm. They had, I was struck by how they were, it made no sense to talk about the offline and online with these groups. Yeah. They um, often cliques were organized based on what they did online. So it's, it, the old cliques in the school were based mm. around their gaming habits or their um, social network profile, for instance. They, there's, there's a, uh, the non-conformists, for instance, were quite interested in 
feminist politics, mm. but they didn't, they weren't having that endorsed or reinforced inside in the school. In fact, they often get mocked for it. Yeah. But they, they'd meet online and share their concerns with other feminists in their social network. And that reinforced their, their marginal status inside the school then. And it was the same um, with the academic conservatives. They distanced themselves from the, the leisurists, the people who they said they were addicted to their screens mm. because they prioritised their schoolwork. Yeah. And they wanted to make sure they did their homework first. They wanted to be seen to be doing their homework as well because they, they were getting praise from their teacher and they were marked out from a group as a high achieving within high, a group within a school that, that, that generally wasn't, didn't have great results. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, would, would you like to kind of hazard a, uh, a suggestion as to what the kind of the, the, the broader consequences of, the, of these kinds of findings are in terms of actually is the suggestion that um, schools and educational policy needs to take much more account of the of the actual sort of the, the lived ethnographic experiences of um, of students and, and how they engage with with technologies in this kind of way and actually align more with that um, or, or would it be something else um, well I don't know because depending on the education trajectory that have very different experiences of yeah. education and work you know they they if we um move say students away from essay writing mm. and um passing exams through rote knowledge then it may be disadvantage them when it comes to going to a russell group university for instance where they that's the that's the academic model right mm. so uh, it needs to be some sort of coordination throughout the whole system where we're not excluding, we, we, the, we're not like outsourcing education technology for people who are already educationally disadvantaged. So, yeah, you know, the, I mean, thinking about, I, I, I'm working on, a, just as a side issue, I'm working on a project about the application of AI, AI in, in um, education. Right. And all the, the emerging trends point to AI being used to, you know, factory farm students who can't afford a great education, right? Mm. So the AI would be like a virtual assistant that supplements the teacher, but also allows for bigger class sizes. Right. Whereas if you're, if you, if you have wealthy parents, then you can expect to have small class with a well-qualified teacher and that continues through to like an Oxbridge education you have a small tutor group mm. with uh, you know uh, an expert in their field sitting down with you a couple of hours a week you know and so get this bifurcation of the system based on technology I think we've got to be careful that that's not going to happen in in um, education further down as well you know, when we start at primary level. So I get really worried about how the technology is being introduced into education and whether it's just going to amplify existing inequalities. Yeah, because it'll be used in that stratified kind of way yeah. uh, in, in, in which the actual human 
um, human interaction, uh, hum, human attention uh, will be um, more greatly kind of valued and valuable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, although the, um, this tech has to be, a, the, the curriculum has to be updated for, for children, for young people's experience, it has to be done in such a way that doesn't um, uh, undermine the um, what we know works with young people, which is like you know, good teachers building mm. relationships with students and um, small classes and that kind of thing. I know I'm getting into difficult territory here because this is all these stuff are like highly contested within education. Yeah, even even the question of class sizes, right? Yeah, now, I'm not an educational expert, but um, it's just I, I worry about how technology is unscientifically brought into the equation, you know, and usually it's mobilized by discourse rather than evidence. Yeah, um, I mean, and, and that, that that's true across educational and well, I suppose mm. most areas of policy uh, uh, in general. Um, mm. I, I would say, um, but again, I think that that's what's what one of the things I found really valuable in your work is is this kind of really sort of evidence based approach of challenging these um, these kinds of discourses, um, these educational discourses, and and the kind of the the technical or uh, technological discourses that we mentioned before, those kind of utopian, optimistic views of what of what technology can do. Um, I think that, that that's really great. Um, like you say, that the actual solutions um, to these problems are, are almost kind of uh, different issues mm. um, that are much harder to take up. Uh, you conducted a study which was um, in, uh, involved with like, uh, providing young people with, um, with laptops um, that would um, enable, uh, and this is kind of uh, families that, that in most cases I think wouldn't otherwise have access to, um, uh, to that kind of technology. Um, to see, uh, I think, to investigate the, the impact that could have on their um, uh, on their education, and, and to see how that they to see how that they used it, um, and I think um, uh, again, I think that you know the picture was mixed in terms of uh, how it improved their educational kind of outcomes, but you did um, find that it actually helped to tackle sometimes other issues such as social social isolation and kind of self confidence, which I found really interesting, particularly because. Often the the um, the discourse that we get, particularly in kind of mainstream media and things like this, is that um, really that we're increasingly getting is that the internet, social media, all these things are actually damaging to young people's um, health, particularly their kind of mental health, um, and increasing uh, sort of anxiety and uh, and those kinds of problems. Um, so, I wonder if you could tell me just a little bit more about about that what what you found in that study. Yeah, I mean. That's true across all the studies. I mean, the study in Wales, um, the, some young teenagers there had really transformative experiences through the internet. So when I talked about um, one of the, the, the group that were feminists, for instance, they said that well, we'd never come across that if it wasn't for the internet. Yeah. And they it completely, it completely changed their worldview and they were, they, they were anxious to travel, get away from home. And... Um, they learned all sorts of things about the about world. Some of them were learning, for instance, um, to speak Japanese and Korean, you know, because they were interested in that culture. They had friends in Australia and America, so there's much more cosmopolitan outlook. And when you talk to them about other things like uh, 
um, you know, inevitably top of immigration something came up as well, and they they were much more um, open minded about it. Mm. So the um, they had much the internet like changed their worldview, and like you say in the uh, the home access scheme as well, that these were young people who had really depressing lives. You know, they didn't want to go to school because they were bullied sometimes, or they 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 came from they they lived in poor housing conditions, or they um, they uh, their parents were split up and this sort of thing. And for them, the internet was a lifeline. Yeah, you know, and uh, I felt terrible about the study that that we cut it off after two years and I tried mm-hmm. looking into many ways how to extend it and uh, I, I couldn't as much as I couldn't try I couldn't find any partners who were willing to keep it going and um, so I really wish we'd had more money to develop that scheme uh, we had like um, a, a young man for instance who was uh, um, uh, he, he found an apprenticeship to be a, 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 a furrier and oh, wow. through his through the internet, and then he was he was um, he did his work experience there, but also he'd come home and he'd Google tutorials how to and on and look at watch tutorials on YouTube, and then he'd go in and impress his boss of what he found out on mm-hmm. YouTube. And there was also another uh, uh, young woman who would, um, was really interested in fashion, and uh, she was. Um, develop, thinking about doing a, a fashion blog and and sharing their designs with a wider public and, and they were sort of, these sort of things really animated them and gave them a sense of hope you know um, the argument from the paper was is that there are multiple agencies that there were uh, um, um, sort of intervening in these, in these young people's lives should have been coordinated in some way to making sure the benefits of technology were substantiated and continued, mm. you know. So, for example, if they, um, if the, the engagement with technology was mental health was in, improving their mental health, then the, there should be some way of building upon that through um, counselling or through. Um, um, cognitive behavior therapy or something like that, you know, and it, it wasn't, there wasn't the, 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 tech, the, the, the power of technology in that instance wasn't being realized. No, and I think that that's, that's extremely important because um, as you've identified, you know, te- using technologies um, such as these um, as, an in, as a kind of a panacea for just solving all these problems isn't going to work and it, and it, and it especially won't work in isolation. No. Um, because all those kind of positive um, outcomes and examples you've suggested, um, and actually just the the the, uh, the only way that people, particularly young people, I think this is all people really now engage with the internet, isn't as this isolated thing that's outside of the 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 um, um, the offline or the analog world or however you want to talk about it. It is interconnected with it, and it has to be if it's going to do any good. But I think also that these outcomes are not from necessarily from these really directed you know, uh, skilling of individuals or something like that. It's, it's actually, as you showed about kind of opening up, potentially helping to open up horizons uh, and connections to, to things that they might not otherwise have done. 
it's a much more kind of indirect positive benefit, um, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Give young people the opportunity to express their agency and then structure the support around that. Yeah. Not like it's top down solutions that are forced upon them that are bound to fail. Yeah. I mean, and I suppose actually, the, in some senses, there's, a, there's an analogy which you made in the sense that um, something else which is, is kind of disappearing is libraries and, uh, you know, community kind of libraries are, are, are not beneficial because they, um, because of any specific or, or direct kind of necessarily um, programs that they're running or whatever, which may be, which may be useful, but it's that general kind of uh, ability to go in and explore and, and find new ideas and, 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 and find your kind of, um, uh, find something of interest uh, mm. in your life that, that, that's beneficial to it. it it's that, um, much less easily kind of quantifiable and kind of measurable uh, impact uh, and social good that it can have. Yeah, I like that analogy. I mean, I, I, um, I tried to do something similar in that uh, paper where I talked about how these, there's nothing new here, that there's, there's teenagers who did things in the past with fanzines and magazines yeah. and um, customising their cars, and they're doing the same thing, but with the internet involved now. Mm. So it's, they, it's, it's a way of like intergenerational bonding, it's the way of expressing their identity, mm. but instead of using analogue materials, they're using digital materials. Yeah, I think that's right. So, um, well, anyway, that's, um, that's been, it's been really great to have a chat with you, and I don't want to keep you any longer, because um, you've given up a lot of your time already, and um, um, but um, it's good to end on a, something of a positive note there, um, uh, as well as highlighting um, those um, the, those uh, critical uh, aspects before as well. But um, thanks for talking to me, uh, Hugh. That's been a pleasure, Chris. Oh, great, great. Just thanks. Say, um, I just hope, I just sub wish there was better ways for to take sociological insights and make better policy. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, we, we know as kind of... Um, uh, as uh, social researchers and uh, and from our own experiences or from people we know that um, it is hard to get this stuff through into policy and even if it is even if it does get technically written into kind of um, documents that, that go in front of um, uh, uh, policy makers or MPs or, or, or anyone else uh, often they're just kind of, it's just kind of inserted as a um, as a bit of a flourish or as a, a, a um, uh, as a way of demonstrating that it's engaged with research rather than actually influencing any outcomes. Mm. Um, and that's something that's very hard to, very hard to understand how to, how, how to challenge really. Mm. Um, I think that's something for our next study group meeting. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And on that point, actually, um, anyone who wants to follow um, our, our digital sociology study group can um, find us on Twitter at BSA digital sock uh, so um do um do check us out on there um but uh, yeah great to talk to you again and i'll um, i'll be seeing you very soon no thanks very much chris bye cheers